Good day to you, brothers, sisters, friends, and new faces. Today, today is January 10th, and today we're going to be talking about our Christian responsibility in a democracy. Our primary scripture reference today is going to be 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, and we'll have several other scriptures that we'll reference and read today, and we'll put those in the comments. But right now, let's turn to 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4 as our primary backdrop, and then Let's just dig right in. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So, Jim... What is our Christian responsibility in a democracy? Well, we open with a, um, a question. In politics, what is the first and the last thing sought? And the answer to that is power. Mm. In our current events of the day, we've got elections, the president, some senators. It's in the area. Everyone's talking about it. And the question is, who's going to get the power? And if they get the power, can they keep the power? That's the current event. The Christian expectation is very simple. What does God, who has the power, expect from us? Hmm. It is important to remember that because when Pilate was interrogating Jesus, we're thinking now of John 19, Jesus is not responding. And Pilate says, you're not going to respond, talk to me, you're not going to say anything. Don't you know that I have the power to let you go free? Or the power to crucify you. And Jesus says, very frankly and calmly, you would have no power at all if it were not given to you from above. He understood all power comes from God. We who are Christians need to follow the Word of God to find out what God expects of us. And this passage that Randy just read from 1 Timothy 2 is a classic one. It's also um, confirmed by Romans 13, in that passage, Paul talks about government, and again, he says it's about law and order. As you can tell from 1 Timothy 2, those four verses, it's clearly about things that are based on some kind of law and order. Likewise, 1 Timothy 2, verses 13 and 14, even repeats the same phrase that Paul uses, that the powers that be are ordained to punish the evildoer and commend those who do good. And so, with the passage before us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, those verses clearly point out that there is a need for stability, for law and order. And that is the first priority and the only one that is addressed here in this passage. It is interesting to notice that it's about peace and quiet, as verses that Randy read. And when we talk about peace and quiet, it's not about the kind of peace and quiet that you can have with a totalitarian government. Totalitarian governments have always been able to have peace and quiet, but this is God's peace and God's quiet for we who are Christians so we can live holy, godly lives. It's for us first and foremost. And it's a kind of peace and quiet that leaves us undisturbed. You don't worry about someone breaking in your door at 2 a.m. in the morning without uh, any kind of authorization. And 
disturbing the family and hauling people off, as happens in so many countries. Believe me, they have stability and they have peace and quiet, but that's not what this passage is referring to. God wants people to have good order in their lives, in their community, their cities, their countries, their culture. And therefore, we are to pray for this kind of stability, peace and quiet. Not vote for this kind of stability? Not vote for it. Pray for it. <laughs> Prayer is at the top of the list. Remember in the days of the Roman Empire, as is the case throughout almost all of human history, people did not vote. Hmm. They had a government over them. It wasn't chosen by them. It was in place. It leaves. Another one comes in. But what can be done is we can pray for stability because no political system, no government can exist unless there is law and order and peace. Chaos benefits no one. Mm. So, with that in mind, remember that God is a God of order. And Genesis chapter 1 starts off with, uh, God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. That's chaos. And then God calls for light, because light scatters darkness. You can see things. And then the next day, he divides the waters from the waters, because you can't have water everywhere. And the third day, he divides the water from the land. And this thing of separating things brings order. And so by the time you reach the sixth day, when Adam and Eve were created, everything is in order. It's an orderly planet. And that's what God wants for his communities, which are his. He owns the world. So we pray for that. Because without order, nothing happens. I read a quote by the great historian Will Durant, writer of histories of the 20th century and all those centuries previous, and has 11 volumes, I think it is. And he said when he was young, he just wanted freedom. And he said, now that I've gotten old, I realize you gotta have order first because freedom comes out of order. Mm. Otherwise, it's just all chaos. So this is what we end up with, chaos, in which no government can survive if we don't have order. Now, what is the goal then of having order? And then the very next verse, verse three, tells us it's good and pleasing in the sight of God who desires everyone to be saved, not just our leaders, but everyone else. And so the prayer for order is in order that hmm. the word of salvation goes forth and people can hear it. We're not concerned about the government in place. So you can have law and order regardless of the type of government. Exactly. As we're going to see when we get to an illustration, uh, which is very pertinent, from the Old Testament. And so... Other considerations, like voting, are just not in view. Whatever we think about voting, nonetheless, throughout most of human history, and certainly most of Christian history for 2,000 years, Christians did not vote. They, the governments were already in place. But the priority has not changed, and it never changes, because this works, this 1 Timothy 2, emphasis on prayer for law and order, for peace and quiet, which benefits everybody, works in all times and in all places. So we're going to take a look from Jeremiah, chapter 29, uh, verses 4 through 7. And just to give you the background, this is a letter that Jeremiah writes to the exiles of Israel who are in Babylon, exiled because of their wickedness and idolatry. And it's the word of the Lord. He dictated to Jeremiah. And in this, we see what God wants his people to be in the land of Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. 
Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because it, if it prospers, you too will prosper. Interesting that the Lord instructs his people to pray for this enemy city that they've been carried off to and for its prosperity. Yes, it's, and one can almost imagine a conversation because they're doing none of these things. None of these things because the prophets around them are false prophets, as you read the rest of chapter 29, and they're prophesying lies, and they're going to be there 70 years. That was the prophecy that Jeremiah had, 70 mm. years in exile. Mm. So they're listening to lies that they're not going to be there long. They're going to be back home, and so they're not doing anything. And so the Lord God says, listen, settle down, plant, produce food, marry, get your people to marry, intermarry, and have sons and daughters, multiply, and then have children, have grandchildren. And especially pray for the peace and prosperity of Babylon because in their peace and prosperity is your peace and prosperity. Well, mm. I can imagine a conversation as soon as they heard that, the Jews <laughs> saying to the Lord God, <clears throat> what? Yeah, what you talking about? <laughs> we're, we're supposed to be praying for these idolaters? That's tough. Uh, yes, pray for the idolaters. And by the way, that's what you were and that's why you got exiled. Mm. Huh? You mean... These people who don't fear God, yes, pray for these people to prosper and do well. And by the way, you're there in Babylon because you didn't fear God. And our children and grandchildren, they're going to grow up in a pagan environment. Uh, yes, but you pray for the prosperity and the welfare of this place, this city, and you continue to worship me, of course. God wants peace and order, even prosperity everywhere. So here is Israel in a peculiar position of being in a foreign land, which is pagan and idolatrous, and yet God says, pray for them, that they may have peace and prosperity, and like any place else, rear children, have grandchildren, and continue to plant and reap and live life like you're supposed to. You hear this echoed in the New Testament, too, when Jesus says to pray for your enemies. Pray for you, exactly. Yeah. So there's a carryover there with the, the ministry of Jesus. So, And, of course, in this situation, it's pretty obvious they're not going to be seeking power. This is the whole problem and this is the pattern we want to discuss in the rest of this uh, broadcast. Um, don't seek power. Don't seek to revolutionize them, overthrow them. Mm -mm. Seek their peace and prosperity because you will have peace and prosperity. So why is there this problem with seeking power? Why doesn't it work? Because we make uh, constitutions and laws, and yet the people seem to do other than what is put down on paper. We're going to turn to a passage <clears throat> in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, which outlines for Israel, when they finally do get into the land, this is long before their exile, this is the first time they enter into the land, and they want a king, the directions that God gives them on how to do this. And then we're going to go later to 1 Samuel 8 and find out how they, in fact, did it. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have take possession of it and settle in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you 
one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of gold or silver. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of the law, taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God, and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. Interesting, uh, you know, you, you, you hear this, and then I immediately think of Solomon, who had all these horses, you know. <laughs> yes, and that was the beginning of the downfall of the uh, kingdom. Uh, Solomon, on all of his wisdom, uh, did a couple things. He had tons of silver and gold. Now, God said he'd made him rich. That is true. But what Solomon did with that is a different story. Yeah. He also multiplied wives, and he went into idolatry. So it's interesting in Deuteronomy 17, don't seek horses, which is the power of that era. Yeah. We talk like about tanks. horsepower yet today, yeah. do we not? Yeah. That's where the power was. And don't seek wealth, because there is power. So it's a very severe limitation of the power of the king. And beyond that, the king is to be subjected to God, to fear God, and to trust in his word, have a copy of it made, and carry it with him, and day by day, have it in front of them and read it. Now the question is, how many times with the kings of Israel, once they finally got in the land and did have a king yeah. that they wanted, like all the nations around them, as Deuteronomy 17 states, what happened? Let's take a look at this. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 9. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead over us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. <clears throat> it's kind of a little bit scary there, right? Uh, yes. The interesting thing here is, first of all, they, like Deuteronomy 17, the Lord himself stated, when they asked for a king, like all the other nations have king, here's how they do it. But there were caveats there, you know, no seeking of excessive kinds of power and absolute subjection to the fear of God and, and the rule of the law, the law of Moses. And you hope you get a good king. And you're, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> you're looking for a good king. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, in verses uh, 10 through the rest of that chapter, Samuel outlines what's going to happen with the king they want, who is like all the kings of the world, because since they've rejected God, as God himself says, they've rejected me, it means... They want a king like all the nations in this sense, not to have a government that's a monarchy, but to have a king who has all the power. For whatever strange, unbelievable reason, they didn't want the power of God. They traded the power of God 
for the power of politics of people, of mm. kings. And having rejected God, all they're left is indeed absolutely to get a king like all the other nations have, which is a king who rejects God, because they were all God rejectors. All the nations around Israel, they rejected the God of Israel. And so, oddly enough, ironically enough, that phrase fulfills itself there in rejecting God. So they trade his power for political power. Might also point out that the elders were representing all the people of Israel, and this was a very popular vote. Everybody was for it, and it was wrong. <laughs> It says something about the popular vote. Yeah, the popular vote, yeah. <laughs> so think that the, we take a vote, the majority won. Uh, in so many cases, not only here, but throughout history, doesn't mean a thing. They want, and listen to this. This is so, again, unbelievable. We want a king who will fight battles for us in the wars. Their memory is so short they have forgotten how they got to this land. Hmm. God fought their battle against the Pharaoh. I mean, God himself did it. He split the Red Sea. They walked through. He closed the waters. They didn't have to lift a spear, a sword, anything. He completely wiped them out. Because they rejected God, that only happens once more in Israel's history. With, uh, it happens in Second Chronicles 20, I believe, with Jehoshaphat, yes. And there, all the enemies reign around Israel, and uh, they're going to take on Israel and annihilate Israel and kill the king, uh, Jehoshaphat. And um, Jehoshaphat and his his choir, and they all go out with the soldiers to, to march, but they prayed to God. But God has made all the enemies, previous to their, they get to the battlefield, fight each other and destroy each other. When they reach the battlefield, all they see is dead bodies. Yeah. And all that's left is the spoils of war, which they collect and, and take back with them. Um, God was going to fight their battles. Psalms uh, 20, verse 7, uh, is a great psalm for this. It says, uh, Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the Lord. And good that was, song by that, too. That's right. Yeah. There's a good, there's is that a good right? Song. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so what happens is they've rejected God, and God accommodates them. This is what you want? Okay. God tried to work with them. Of course, they were very stubborn and perverse people. So what is the result of this, then, that they got their own kind of king that they wanted? And rejected God. Well, basically, in all of Israel's history, there's 39 kings. One of them actually was a queen, Queen Athaliah, and she was no good either. Out of those 39 kings, there were really five good ones, and if you want to squabble a little, there's maybe three or four mixed ones of good and bad. But basically, uh, there are five good ones. That means 34 of the kings were bad. That's like a 12% approval rate. That's really <laughs> It's not very good. It's not very good at all. It's terrible. And as a result of that, of course, after Solomon's death, the nation splits. And you've got these tribes in the north which go all over to idolatry under Jeroboam. And you've got uh, Judah and Benjamin there in the, in the south. And so, and it stays that way until upper Israel and southern Israel all become so corrupt, uh, they go into exile. Um, and the uh, Assyrian people come in and take out Israel, the top 10 tribes, and then about 150 years later, Nebuchadnezzar comes from Babylon, takes out the southern part of Israel, and they all have gone into exile. And that's where the instructions that we read from Jeremiah come in, was while they were in exile, after they were all taken away. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're there, so make prosper. Prosper. Pray for the prosperity and the peace of the people you're around, and uh, get to the business of living. Hmm. And uh, so... 
power seeking without God always leads to disaster. So we've talked a lot about the politics and the governments of the Old Testament. What about now? What about the New Testament? Well, Jesus does have politics. We can talk about the politics of Jesus because in a passage in chapter 10 of Mark, he compares the world's politics and how they do things, which is exactly how they were done in Israel. It never changes no matter where you're at, with how Christians are to do politics. And this is how we are to live our lives and conduct ourselves. So, Randy, why don't you read to us from Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yes, this is um, a great passage. It's a stark comparison. And the background for this is that James and John come to Jesus and they have requests. He said, well, what's, what's your request? He said, well, when the kingdom comes and you're here in all your glory, uh, we, one of us wants to sit on the right hand and when the other one on the left hand. They wanted power seats, mm-hmm. you know, bookending Jesus with him in the middle. Yeah. And he goes on to explain to them about certain things of life and, and the spiritual world and so forth and so on. Well, the other disciples, they hear about this. And they, were, they weren't too happy. They, no, oh, they, they are upset. They are really upset. Um, so what happens is um, Jesus says here they're, they're, they were indignant at James and John. Yes, I can just imagine. And, and so Jesus calls them to them and makes his comparison. First of all, notice he says, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and great ones exercise authority over them. We might say in all governments that happens. In some governments, it's very obvious. Mm. We think of totalitarian governments and so forth and so on. But anyone who's studied uh, even the history of democracies uh, in the Western world, power struggles go on all the time yeah. behind the scenes. It's no different. And so yeah. it's really no different. It's just it is covered up better. Um, so Christians are to forego power for service. And this is the model we're to follow. Notice again what he says. Uh, it shall not be so among you. In other words, we do not look to the world or its political models to know how to organize a church and how we are to conduct our community and how we are to live our life. Our model is Jesus, and he teaches very clearly here in Mark that whoever is great, whoever has the power, must be your servant. And if you want to be the first one up, you've got to be a slave of all. And the reason why is because he's the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus is the model, and he tells us how this is to work out in service. Well, someone's bound to ask now, well, then Christians can't be in politics. Well, the answer to that is, it depends on what you mean by being in politics. Next time we do our cast, we're going to take a look at how should a Christian be in politics, and the answer is, he must, or she must, depending, have a prophetic call. And we're going to look at that next time. Meanwhile, as we close, here's a thought. We're witnessing the normalization of political violence, chaos in so many places. And so the question has to be asked because we've seen in 1 Timothy chapter 2 what we're supposed to do for peace and quiet. 
so the word of salvation can go through an orderly society. If that is not happening, we need to think on this. Are we not praying as we should? Or as often as we should? Or, conversely, is this the judgment of God? These are the things on which we should think. Well, thanks, Jim. You've certainly given us a lot to think about. And I'm sure that there are questions and comments about it. And to that end, we would love to hear those questions and comments from you. So, please send your questions and comments to eventsandexpectations at gmail.com. That's the word events, the word and, and the word expectations at gmail.com. We'll use your question or comment on air where possible, and we will always answer you. This has been Current Events and Christian Expectations, and until next time, keep looking up.